0: part two of a st joan preface by george bernard shaw this librivox recording is in the public domain part two the modern education which joan escaped it is important to everyone nowadays to understand this because modern science is making short work of the hallucinations without regard to the vital importance of the things they symbolize if Joan were reborn today, she would be sent first to a convent school in which she would be mildly taught to connect inspiration and conscience with st Catherine and st Michael exactly as she was in the fifteenth century, and then finished up with a very energetic training in the gospel of saints Louis Pasteur and Paul Bert who would tell her possibly in visions but more probably in pamphlets not to be a superstitious little fool and to empty out st catherine and the rest of the catholic agiology as an obsolete iconography of exploded myths It would be rubbed into her that Galileo was a martyr, and his persecutors incorrigible ignoramuses, and that St. Teresa's hormones had gone astray, and left her incurably hyperpituitary, or hyperadrenal, or hysteroid, or epileptoid, or anything but asteroid. She would have been convinced by precept and experiment that baptism and receiving the body of her Lord were contemptible, superstitions and that vaccination and vivisection were enlightened practices behind her news since louis and paul there would be not only science purifying religion and being purified by it but hypochondria melancholia cowardice stupidity cruelty muckraking curiosity knowledge without wisdom and everything that the eternal soul in nature loathes instead of the virtues of which St. Catherine was the figurehead. As to the new rites, which would be the saner Joan, the one who carried little children to be baptized of water and the Spirit, or the one who sent the police to force their parents to have the most villainous racial poison, we know, thrust into their veins, the one who told them the story of the angel and Mary, or the one who questioned them as to their experiences of the Oedipus complex? the one to whom the consecrated wafer was the very body of the virtue that was her salvation or the one who looked forward to a precise and convenient regulation of her health and her desires by a nicely calculated diet of thyroid extract adrenaline thymine pituitrine and insulin with pick-me-ups of hormone stimulants the blood being first carefully fortified with antibodies against all possible infections by inoculations of infected bacteria and serum from infected animals and against old age by surgical extirpation of the reproductive ducts or weekly doses of monkey gland it is true that behind all these quackeries there is a certain body of genuine scientific physiology but was there any the less a certain body of genuine psychology behind st catherine and the holy ghost and which is the healthier mind the saintly mind or the monkey gland mind does not the present cry of back to the middle ages which has been incubating ever since the pre-raphaelite movement began mean that it is no longer our academy pictures that are intolerable but our credulities that have not the excuse of being superstitions our cruelties that have not the excuse of barbarism our persecutions that have not the excuse of religious faith our shameless substitution of successful swindlers and scoundrels and quacks for saints as objects of worship and our deafness and blindness to the calls and visions of the inexorable power that made us and will destroy us if we disregard it to joan and her contemporaries we should appear as a drove of gathering swine possessed by all the unclean spirits cast out by the faith and civilization of the middle ages running violently down a steep place into a hell of high explosives for us to set up our condition as a standard of sanity and declare joan mad because she never condescended to it is to prove that we are not only lost but irredeemable let us then once for all drop all nonsense about joan being cracked and accept her as at least as sane as florence nightingale who also combined a very simple iconography of religious belief with a mind so exceptionally powerful that it kept her in continual trouble with the medical and military panjandrums of her time failures of the voices that the voices and visions were illusory and their wisdom all joan's own is shown by the occasions on which they failed her notably during her trial when they assured her that she would be rescued here her hopes flattered her but they were not unreasonable her military colleague Lahire was in command of a considerable force not so very far off and if the armagnacs as her party was called had really wanted to rescue her and had put anything like her own vigour into the enterprise they could have attempted it with very fair chances of success She did not understand that they were glad to be rid of her, nor that the rescue of a prisoner from the hands of the church was a much more serious business for a medieval captain, or even a medieval king, than its mere physical difficulty as a military exploit suggested according to her lights her expectation of a rescue was reasonable therefore she heard madame saint-catherine assure her it would happen that being her way of finding out and making up her own mind when it became evident that she had miscalculated when she was led to the stake and la hire was not thundering at the gates of rouen nor charging warwick's men at arms she threw over saint-catherine at once and recanted nothing could be more sane or practical it was not until she discovered that she had gained nothing by her recantation but close imprisonment for life that she withdrew it and deliberately and explicitly chose burning instead a decision which showed not only the extraordinary decision of her character but also a rationalism carried to its ultimate human test of suicide yet even in this the illusion persisted and she announced her relapse as dictated to her by her voices joan a galtonic visualizer the most skeptical scientific reader may therefore accept as a flat fact carrying no implication of unsoundness of mind that joan was what francis galton and other modern investigators of human faculty call a visualizer She saw imaginary saints, just as some other people see imaginary diagrams and landscapes with numbers dotted about them, and are therefore able to perform feats of memory and arithmetic impossible to non-visualizers. Visualizers Visualizers will understand this at once. Non-visualizers who have never read Galton will be puzzled and incredulous. But a very little inquiry among their acquaintances will reveal to them that the mind's eye is more or less a magic lantern, and that the street is full of normally sane people who have hallucinations of all sorts which they believe to be part of the normal, permanent equipment of all human beings. Jones' Manliness and Militarism Joan's other abnormality, too common among uncommon things to be properly called a peculiarity, was her craze for soldiering and the masculine life. Her father tried to frighten her out of it by threatening to drown her if she ran away with the soldiers, and ordering her brothers to drown her if he were not on the spot. This extravagance was clearly not serious it must have been addressed to a child young enough to imagine that he was in earnest joan must therefore as a child have wanted to run away and be a soldier the awful prospect of being thrown into the meuse and drowned by a terrible father and her big brothers kept her quiet until the father had lost his terrors and the brothers yielded to her natural leadership and by that time she had sense enough to know that the masculine and military life was not a mere matter of running away from home but the taste for it never left her and was fundamental in determining her career if any one doubts this let him ask himself why a maid charged with a special mission from heaven to the dauphin This was how Joan saw her very able plan for retrieving the desperate situation of the uncrowned king should not have simply gone to the court as a maid in a woman's dress and urged her counsel upon him in a woman's way, as other women with similar missions had come to his mad father and his wise grandfather why did she insist on having a soldier's dress and arms and sword and horse and equipment and on treating her escort of soldiers as comrades sleeping side by side with them on the floor at night as if there were no difference of sex between them it may be answered that this was the safest way of travelling through a country infested with hostile troops and bands of marauding deserters from both sides such an answer has no weight because it applies to all the women who travelled in france at that time and who never dreamt of travelling otherwise than as women but even if we accept it how does it account for the fact that when the danger was over and she could present herself at court in feminine attire with perfect safety and obviously with greater propriety she presented herself in her man's dress and instead of urging charles like queen victoria urging the war office to send roberts to the transvaal to send d'Alesson, de Lahire, and the rest to the relief of Dumois at Orléans insisted that she must go herself and lead the assault in person. Why did she give exhibitions of her dexterity in handling a lance and of her seat as a rider? Why did she accept presents of armour and chargers and masculine circuits, and in every action repudiate the conventional character of a woman? the simple answer to all these questions is that she was the sort of woman that wants to lead a man's life they are to be found wherever there are armies on foot or navies on the seas serving in male disguise eluding detection for astonishingly long periods and sometimes no doubt escaping it entirely when they are in a position to defy public opinion they throw off all concealment you have your rosa bonheur painting in mail blouse and trousers and george sand living a man's life and almost compelling her chopin's and des de to live women's lives to amuse her had joan not been one of these unwomanly women she might have been canonized much sooner but it is not necessary to wear trousers and smoke big cigars to live a man's life any more than it is necessary to wear petticoats to live a woman's there are plenty of gowned and bodiced women in ordinary civil life who manage their own affairs and other people's including those of their menfolk, and are entirely masculine in their tastes and pursuits There always were such women, even in the Victorian days, when women had fewer legal rights than men, and our modern women, magistrates, mayors, and members of parliament were unknown. In reactionary Russia in our own century, a woman soldier organized an effective regiment of Amazons, which disappeared only because it was Aldershotian enough to be against the revolution the exemption of women from military service is founded not on any natural inaptitude that men do not share but on the fact that communities cannot reproduce themselves without plenty of women men are more largely dispensable and are sacrificed accordingly was joan suicidal these two abnormalities were the only ones that were irresistibly prepotent in joan and they brought her to the stake neither of them was peculiar to her there was nothing peculiar about her except the vigor and scope of her mind and character and the intensity of her vital energy she was accused of a suicidal tendency and it is a fact that when she attempted to escape from beaurevoir castle by jumping from a tower said to be sixty feet high she took a risk beyond reason though she recovered from the crash after a few days fasting her death was deliberately chosen as an alternative to life without liberty in battle she challenged death as wellington did at waterloo and as nelson habitually did when he walked his quarter-deck during his battles with all his decorations in full blaze as neither nelson nor wellington nor any of those who have performed desperate feats and preferred death to captivity has been accused of suicidal mania joan need not be suspected of it in the beaurevoir affair there was more at stake than her freedom she was distracted by the news that compiegne was about to fall and she was convinced that she could save it if only she could get free still the leap was so perilous that her conscience was not quite easy about it and she expressed this as usual by saying that st catherine had forbidden her to do it but forgave her afterwards for her disobedience joan summed up we may accept and admire joan then as a sane and shrewd country girl of extraordinary strength of mind and harditude of body everything she did was thoroughly calculated and though the process was so rapid that she was hardly conscious of it and ascribed it all to her voices she was a woman of policy and not of blind impulse in war she was as much a realist as napoleon she had his eye for artillery and his knowledge of what it could do she did not expect besieged cities to fall jericho-wise at the sound of her trumpet but like wellington adapted her methods of attack to the peculiarities of the defense and she anticipated the napoleonic calculation that if you only hold on long enough the other fellow will give in for example, her final triumph at Orléans was achieved after her commander de Noix had sounded the retreat at the end of a day's fighting without a decision. She was never for a moment what so many romancers and playwrights have pretended—a romantic young lady. She was a thorough daughter of the soil in her peasant-like matter-of-factness and doggedness, and her acceptance of great lords and kings and prelates as such, without idolatry or snobbery, seeing, at a glance, how much they were individually good for. She had the respectable countrywoman's sense of the value of public decency, and would not tolerate foul language and neglect of religious observance, nor allow disreputable women to hang about her soldiers. She had one pious ejaculation, en nom de, and one meaningless oath, par mon matin and this much swearing she allowed to the incorrigibly blasphemous Hire, equally with herself the value of this prudery was so great in restoring the self-respect of the badly demoralized army that like most of her policy it justified itself as soundly calculated she talked to and dealt with people of all classes from laborers to kings without embarrassment or affectation and got them to do what she wanted when they were not afraid or corrupt she could coax and she could hustle her tongue having a soft side and a sharp edge. She was very capable. A born boss. Joan's Immaturity and Ignorance All this, however, must be taken with one heavy qualification. She was only a girl in her teens. If we could think of her as a managing woman of fifty, we could seize her type at once— for we have plenty of managing women among us of that age who illustrate perfectly the sort of person she would have become had she lived but she being only a lass when all is said lacked their knowledge of men's vanities and of the weight and proportion of social forces she knew nothing of iron hands and velvet gloves she just used her fists she thought political changes much easier than they are and like mahomet in his innocence of any world but the tribal world wrote letters to kings calling on them to make millennial rearrangements consequently it was only in the enterprises that were really simple and compassible by swift physical force like the coronation and the orleans campaign that she was successful Her want of academic education disabled her when she had to deal with such elaborately artificial structures as the great ecclesiastical and social institutions of the Middle Ages. She had a horror of heretics without suspecting that she was herself a heresiarch, one of the precursors of a schism that rent Europe in two and cost centuries of bloodshed that is not yet staunched she objected to foreigners on the sensible ground that they were not in their proper place in france but she had no notion of how this brought her into conflict with catholicism and feudalism both essentially international she worked by common sense and where scholarship was the only clue to institution, she was in the dark and broke her shins against them all the more rudely because of her enormous self-confidence which made her the least cautious of human beings in civil affairs this combination of inept youth and academic ignorance with great natural capacity push courage devotion originality and oddity fully accounts for all the facts in Joan's career and makes her a creditable historical and human phenomenon, but it clashes most discordantly both with the idolatrous romance that has grown up around her and the belittling skepticism that reacts against that romance. The Maid in Literature english readers would probably like to know how these idolizations and reactions have affected the books they are most familiar with about joan there is the first part of the shakespearean or pseudo shakespearean trilogy of henry the sixth in which joan is one of the leading characters this portrait of joan is not more authentic than the description in the london papers of george washington in seventeen eighty of napoleon in eighteen o three of the german crown prince in nineteen fifteen or of lenin in nineteen seventeen it ends in mere scurrility the impression left by it is that the playwright having begun by an attempt to make joan a beautiful and romantic figure was told by his scandalized company that english patriotism would never stand a sympathetic representation of a french conqueror of english troops and that unless he at once introduced all the old charges against joan of being a sorceress and harlot and assumed her to be guilty of all of them his play could not be produced. As likely as not, this is what actually happened. Indeed, there is only one other apparent way of accounting for the sympathetic representation of Joan as a heroine culminating in her eloquent appeal to the Duke of Burgundy, followed by the blackguardedly scurrility of the concluding scenes that other way is to assume that the original play was wholly scurrilous and that shakespeare touched up the earlier scenes as the work belongs to a period at which he was only beginning his practice as a tinker of old works before his own style was fully formed and hardened it is impossible to verify this guess His finger is not unmistakably evident in the play, which is poor and base in its moral tone, but he may have tried to redeem it from downright infamy by shedding a momentary glamour on the figure of the maid. When we jump over two centuries to Schiller, we find Die Jungfrau von Orléans drowned in a witch's cauldron of raging romance. Schiller's Joan has not a single point of contact with the real Joan, nor, indeed, with any mortal woman that ever walked this earth. There is really nothing to be said of his play but that it is not about Joan at all, and can hardly be said to pretend to be, for he makes her die on the battlefield, finding her burning unbearable before schiller came voltaire who burlesqued homer in a mock epic called la pucelle it is the fashion to dismiss this with virtuous indignation as an obscene libel and i certainly cannot defend it against the charge of extravagant indecorum but its purpose was not to depict joan but to kill with ridicule everything that voltaire righteously hated in the institutions and fashions of his own day he made joan ridiculous but not contemptible nor comparatively unchaste and as he also made homer and st peter and st denis and the brave dunois ridiculous and the other heroines of the poem very unchaste indeed he may be said to have let joan off very easily but indeed the personal adventures of the characters are so outrageous and so homerically free from any pretense at or even possibility of historical veracity that those who affect to take them seriously only make themselves pecksniffian samuel butler believed the iliad to be a burlesque of greek jingoism and greek religion written by a hostage or a slave la pucelle makes butler's theory almost convincing voltaire represents agnes sorel the dauphin's mistress whom joan never met as a woman with a consuming passion for the chastest concubinal fidelity whose fate it was to be continually falling into the hands of licentious foes and suffering the worst extremities of rapine The combats in which Joan rides a flying donkey, or in which, taken unaware with no clothes on, she defends Agnes with her sword, and inflicts appropriate mutilations on her assailants, can be laughed at, as they are intended to be, without scruple, for no sane person could mistake them for sober history, and it may be that their ribald irreverence is more wholesome than the beglamoured sentimentality of Schiller certainly voltaire should not have asserted that joan's father was a priest but when he was out to hérasser la femme the french church he stuck at nothing so far the literary representations of the maid were legendary but the publication of by quittera in eighteen forty one of the reports of her trial and rehabilitation placed the subject on a new footing these entirely realistic documents created a living interest in Joan, which Voltaire's mock Homerics and Schiller's romantic nonsense missed. Typical products of that interest in America and England are the histories of Joan by Mark Twain and Andrew Lang. Mark Twain was converted to downright worship of Joan directly by Kishara later on another man of genius anatole franz reacted against the kicharatic wave of enthusiasm and wrote a life of joan in which he attributed joan's ideas to clerical prompting and her military success to an adroit use of her by dunois as a mascot. in short he denied that she had any serious military or political ability at this, Andrew saw red and went for Anatole's scalp in a rival life of her, which should be read as a corrective to the other. Lang had no difficulty in showing that Joan's ability was not an unnatural fiction to be explained away as an illusion manufactured by priests and soldiers, but a straightforward fact it has been lightly pleaded in explanation that anatole France is a parisian of the art world into whose scheme of things the able hard-headed hard-handed female though she dominates provincial france and business paris does not enter whereas lang was a scot and every scot knows that the grey mare is as likely as not to be the better horse but this explanation does not convince me i cannot believe that anatole france does not know what everybody knows i wish everybody knew all that he knows one feels antipathies at work in his book he is not anti joan but he is anti clerical anti mystic and fundamentally unable to believe that there ever was any such person as the real joan mark twain's joan skirted to the ground and with as many petticoats as noah's wife in a toy ark is an attempt to combine bayard with esther summerson from bleak house into an unimpeachable american schoolteacher in armor like esther Summerson, she makes her creator ridiculous and yet being the work of a man of genius remains a creditable human goody-goody in spite of her creator's infatuation it is the description rather than the valuation that is wrong andrew lang and mark twain are equally determined to make joan a beautiful and most ladylike victorian but both of them recognize and insist on her capacity for leadership though the scots scholar is less romantic about it than the mississippi pilot but then, Lang was, by lifelong professional habit, a critic of biographies rather than a biographer, whereas Mark Twain writes his biography frankly in the form of a romance. Protestant Misunderstanding of the Middle Ages They had, however, one disability in common. To understand Joan's history, it is not enough to understand her character. You must understand her environment as well joan in a nineteenth-century environment is as incongruous a figure as she would appear were she to walk down piccadilly today in her fifteenth-century armour to see her in her proper perspective you must understand christendom and the catholic church the holy roman empire and the feudal system as they existed and were understood in the middle ages If you confuse the Middle Ages with the Dark Ages, and are in the habit of ridiculing your aunt for wearing medieval clothes, meaning those in vogue in the 1890s, and are quite convinced that the world has progressed enormously, both morally and mechanically, since Joan's time, then you will never understand why Joan was burnt, much less feel that you might have voted for burning her yourself if you had been a member of the court that tried her and until you feel that you know nothing essential about her that the mississippi pilot should have broken down on this misunderstanding is natural enough mark twain the innocent abroad who saw the lovely churches of the middle ages without a throb of emotion author of a yankee in the court of king arthur in which the heroes and heroines of medieval chivalry are guise seen through the eyes of a street arab was clearly out of court from the beginning andrew lang was better read but like walter scott he enjoyed medieval history as a string of border romances rather than as the record of a high european civilization based on a catholic faith Both of them were baptized as Protestants and impressed by all their schooling and most of their reading with the belief that Catholic bishops who burnt heretics were persecutors capable of any villainy, that all heretics were Albigensians or Hussites or Jews or Protestants of the highest character, and that the Inquisition was a chamber of horrors invented expressly and exclusively for such burnings accordingly we find them representing peter cochon bishop of Beauvais, the judge who sent joan to the stake as an unconscionable scoundrel and all the questions put to her as traps to ensnare and destroy her and they assume unhesitatingly that the two or three score of canons and doctors of law and divinity who sat with cochon as assessors were exact reproductions of him on slightly less elevated chairs and with a different head-dress part two